Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing issues that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, we haven't prepared this, so I don't know what to say. Hey, welcome to episode 40-something of Slaughter. Yep. Lucy's not really here today. <laughs> I've got a little sound box that's going to go, yep. Oh my God. <gasps> <laughs> and we could do that and then just record it in our own houses. Yeah. <laughs> We'd never have to see each other again. <laughs> if you are listening, you'll know that this is the re-record. Yeah. Because we fucked up. So... I'll be honest, I have the memory of an absolute goldfish, so do not assume at any point that this is rehearsed, (laughs) this is acting. I have forgotten everything about Lucy's story and almost everything about my story. (laughs) Yes. In fact, it's probably harder because it's longer since I looked at the notes. I came to you literally about an hour after I'd finished making my notes, whereas now... It's a discovery for both of us. I'm like looking at these words like, Brian... Anyway... I'll start it. I'm going to do a story about a guy called Brian Newcomb. And this comes from a book that I have mentioned before called Blood in the Glens by Jean McLennan. But it starts in Yorkshire in the summer of 1989. Up north. In a Yorkshire. Village. That's awful. As <laughs> someone who actually grew up in Yorkshire, that's horrendous. My dad used to say I could do a brilliant Yorkshire accent. He, he used to, I did it on the way home from Yorkshire once. And then for weeks after his going, I was just thinking about your Yorkshire accent. It's brilliant. I just kept going, what's the time? <laughs> and he was like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's really good Yorkshire accent. You're really good. Really, really good. And I was like, I could be an actress. <laughs> no, no, I'll be a teacher podcast. I mean, I lost my Yorkshire accent quite quickly. I, I don't even think I can do a good one anymore. I, can't, I can do a Yorkshire accent, but I can't do the one I used to have. Yeah. I used to have a really broad Barnsley accent and Barnsley. I can't, I can't replicate it anymore. So I'm not going to try. Anyway, this happened in a village called Ingleton and the locals were becoming worried about the apparent disappearance of an 88 year old John Shuttleworth. Two fat ladies, 88. Yep. Also known as Jack to his friends. That makes no sense. Like if your name's John, what was his name? John. John. Yeah. Doesn't, you can't shorten John to Jack. It's just a different name. It is the same number of letters, to be fair. Yeah. What's to be gained? John! Chuck! It's no shorter. It's no more convenient. John was his Sunday name. So, at his house, um, the milkman was delivering milk, and the milk that he'd delivered previously was still left out on the step. And the neighbours could hear that his phone was ringing constantly from inside his house, which is pure nostalgia for me. I always wanted to be a milkman as a kid growing up. (laughs) So I, could, so I could just work mornings and then I was done. Chill for the day. Oh, I thought it was so you could sneak around people's houses. So you could have sex with housewives. Isn't that the... When I bring the milk. I'm just going to drop it drop it on the step and run. I'm not even knocking. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, so anyway, the phone they could hear a lot. Incredibly loud, the old landlines. And basically it was his daughter trying to get a hold of him 
and because she was getting no response, she asked some of his neighbours if they would go around and check on the house and making sure that they would check his shed come workshop in the back. So when they did approach the shed, they saw that the door had been held shut across the outside with a piece of metal that had been jammed um, through the handles. And so they removed that and went inside where they found the body of John Shuttleworth. Jack Shuttleworth. It was particularly bloody. He'd been bludgeoned in the head with a large piece of wood and the murder weapon was still in the shed next to him. There was a single bloody fingerprint in the middle of the murder weapon, but unfortunately for the police, it turned out to belong to Mr. Shuttleworth. Mm. I do think that um, like forensic people must get so tired of making the joke, oh, a bloody fingerprint. <laughs> like, yeah, we've heard that one before. <laughs> bloody murder weapon again. Not a detective yet. One day. So his wallet was missing. And his sons told the police that he would often carry large sums of money around with him. He was known to be usually carrying anywhere between £500 to £1,000 just on his person. See, I hate carrying a load of money. Like with this car, I was going to pay cash. Because I got the money back from that one car. Oh, if, you don't listen, if you don't have Patreon, you're not going to know the story. But I had cash on me for ages and it just really stressed me out. I thought people are going to know. They're going to attack me. Well, I never carry cash. The woman who collects the tea and coffee money at school hates me. <laughs> I'm like, what do you expect from me? Until you get a card reader, I'm drinking for free. <laughs> yeah, he's got small change anymore. Oh, it's not small fucking change. It's like five pounds every two weeks, and she doesn't every even buy. Weeks. And she doesn't even buy the milk. Why? Why is she charging if you I more? Could, if I could be asked to do the maths. She is, she is embezzling pounds. me. She's embezzling me for tea. My house is full of tea. I should just take my own. But I'm That's not. insane. Five pounds every I'm basically week. paying for her, like, I'm paying her pension. Yeah. Yeah, so we had a lot of money. Well, the reason he had money on was not because of some grasping tea bitch that he, he worked <laughs> with, but was because he had um, a keen interest in buying cars, fixing them up, selling them on. And so he was always wanting to be ready for a bargain, like if he saw something, because they go quick. John Shuttleworth had been a prize fighter back in his youth, in his earlier days. So he was really cavalier about having the money on him. And when his sons would try and tell him no, he would just say, oh, they'd have to kill me before they took the money off me. And so they did. Pretty much. So robbery seemed to be the most likely motive. So there were press conference appeals from the police and the family also went on TV with some appeals for information about it. And some of the villagers did come forward with descriptions of a man they'd seen with Mr. Shuttleworth on his last day alive. And a few people recalled having seen Mr. Shuttleworth with a five foot eight, dark haired man with a swarthy complexion. What's swarthy? Dark. I think it's what they call white people who they're a bit like ethnically ambiguous people. They're like, ooh, swarthy. <laughs> Got a peasant's tongue. Ooh. <laughs> no, like genuinely a white person with a tan. Used to be the peasants. Didn't I it? think something like I don't think it means like actually dark skinned, just yeah. like darkly complected. So I think it prob- it is a white person just with dark features. Mm. That's all they mean. But so they saw him working on John's car with him outside his house. So police didn't release the description of this man because they wanted to maintain the integrity of any identifications they had. So they wanted any information that came in to be able to cross-reference it with the description, rather than people saying, yeah, I've seen a short, dark man. It's not really much to go on. Mm. 
So they continued with appeals and posters for information, but particularly about the missing wallet. And an empty wallet was eventually found, which would be identified as John's, by a woman who worked in a guest house, well, she owned the guest house, only a few minutes away from where John lived. And it had been found behind a wardrobe, which is pretty fucking impressive. Like, I want to stay in this guest house where they clean behind the wardrobes. <laughs> yeah. And the man who had been staying there in the room, he matched the description of the man who was seen with John Shuttleworth. So she said that this guy's name was David and he'd left in a hurry without paying, but had left one other item, which was a painting. And police would later find out that this painting was also stolen property. Police were able to match the painting to one half of a pair that had been stolen from another guest house about 30 miles away from Ingleton where he had also left without paying, and he'd used the name David Rogers. However, this name didn't match any results with the criminal record check they carried out, so they were none the wiser. They were, however, able to follow the trail of this dark-haired man leaving guest houses without paying. So another B&B talked of a man called David Kerr, who had charmed everyone in the place, and he had been showing off two new paintings that he had acquired stolen exactly but the police put the information on david kerr or david rogers into one of their bulletins that went around other police forces to say here's something we're working on if you know anything about it we can compare notes and in strathclyde they were also looking for a man known as david kerr for the theft of some jewelry from a guest house on the island of mull so a few weeks before the murder of John Shuttleworth, David Kerr had been introduced to a woman named Anne Wood in the hotel bar. And at the end of the evening, after enjoying her company and telling her stories of his boats and homes back in New Zealand, where he claimed to live. That made me think of boats and homes. I did think that when I was writing it. I was like, I wonder if anyone's going to catch my boats and homes. <laughs> Could have said houses, but no. no. Which he said he was from New Zealand. So at the end of this evening, he'd just met this woman in a guest house and he proposed to her. Oh, blimey. So, stealing hearts as well as paintings. Exactly, of a true thief. <laughs> but surprisingly, the next day, Anne actually said yes. Though, unsurprisingly, her teenage daughter was not happy by this union. I love it's the wrong way around. It's like the teenage daughter is like, no, mum. Well, Jean McLennan... The author of the book tried to make out, well, it was probably just teenage antipathy. Mm, no, I think she's like, Suspense. that's not typical teenage bad mood. That's, Common sense. Yeah, she met a man <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> yeah. And she's going to marry him. So they started to spend time together. And a few days later, David Kerr, with Anne and her family, took a ferry from, from Mull to Oban. And on the crossing, Kerr presented Anne with an engagement ring that was supposed to befit a man of his wealth. So they got to the mainland and David Kerr said, okay, just hold on a minute. I'm going to go make a phone call about a couple of things. I'll be back. But that was the last that they ever saw of him. That's a bit weird then. Like, why would he do a runner at that point? He's already given away an expensive ring, which I assume was stolen. Well, when they got back home and found out that the ring he had given her actually belonged to her friend Eileen Stanmore and was part of a whole load of stolen jewellery he'd taken from her. So she was the woman that 
had introduced them and ran the B&B where he'd been staying. David Kerr robbed all her jewellery, totalling around £35,000. Oh, God. And then fucked off. One good thing in terms of the investigation did come out of this is that because he'd been trying to play Happy Families for a few days, he had been foolish enough to have his photograph taken with Anne and her family, which, of course, was handed over to the police, and they now had a bit more of a lead. So this trail of unpaid rooms and stolen goods was followed... Followed? Followed. <laughs> Got up northern now. <laughs> this trail of unpaid rooms and stolen goods was followed to a place called Tongue, spelt like your tongue. Yeah. But it could be Tongue. Because some people call a tongue a tongue. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. I say Tongue. Let's call the whole fucking podcast off. <laughs> Done. It's laughter or slaughter. We'll never know. Except the fact that I say it at the beginning of every episode. (laughs) Yeah, it's clearly slaughter. Oh no, we're pronouncing our podcast wrong, don't we? (laughs) One star. (laughs) They can't even say the name of it. Why would they invent a name of a podcast and then not read it properly? (laughs) It's a good point. So they went to this place called Tong, where they didn't go to the guest house, but in the town, bar staff in the town... Uh, recognized david kerr and they said oh yeah we know this guy he's been around here charming the women he tried to give one of the barmaids a couple of rings <laughs> i wondered what you're gonna say then a roger i've been ring. listening to much my dad wrote a porno if i'm honest freaking she said today what's freaking so they were getting i hope it's not rude because i say that in front of the children oh you shouldn't what friggin still an expletive i say flipping and they freak out they're like you saw well, and not- I did play a video that said bullshit twice. <laughs> and I was on edge for four days being like, someone's going to complain. Twice! going to complain. Well, the first time I was like, oops. It was a poem. Whoops! <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll leave it playing. It oh, a- did you play a video you hadn't watched? I had watched it. That's the worst thing. So it was a poem about our, <laughs> our hometown. And in geography, we're comparing our hometown to... <laughs> it sounds like you've dubbed that in our hometown over the top of what you said yeah well you might as well so anyway so in geography we're comparing our hometown to paris because that's the setting of hugo which is the book we're doing anyway so i was like playing this i'd been sent this poem about our hometown and i'd listened to it watched the whole thing and it it obviously just washed over me because i'd i'd watched the whole thing and then i showed it to the kids the first time it said shit i was like okay he sort of mumbled it a few little glances <laughs> No one really cottoned on. Second time, you said bullshit really clearly. <laughs> so I had to pause it, and I just looked at all the children and went, we can be sensible, can't we? <laughs> anyway. So he gave two rings to a barmaid. <laughs> so they knew they were getting closer. So police arrived at a place called the Smoo Cave Hotel the day after Kerr had just skipped out on his bill. So they were really hot on his tail. He had made himself known to the staff there as being a bit of a flash git. (laughs) They didn't like him. No, he was bragging about his boats and homes again and offering to buy the hotel, even though... That wasn't for sale. Yeah, that wasn't for sale. I will buy your estate. We don't want you to. I've put a lot of effort into this. I've been here for years. No, I will buy it. I think it had been recently sold. And he was like, no, scrap that. I'll buy it. And he even gave over a cheque for about £40,000 for a deposit. But the cheque was registered to the account of a Mrs. Margaret McConey. He'd also befriended a French couple. And he told them that he was a boat importer. And that he needed a lift to get 
pick up the boat and then he was going to sail it back to the buyer. And they'd stayed with him in a lodge and also left without paying. The only thing that had left behind was a backpack. And this would turn out to also be the property of this Margaret McConey. So August 22nd, police held a press conference, this time releasing the photograph in Scotland. But also, this was the day that Margaret McOney was reported missing. So at the time of her disappearance, she was 55, widowed and living in Glasgow with her adult daughter. She worked as a carer for an elderly man and had decided to take the summer off to go on a walking holiday. So her daughter had said, yeah, sure, just make sure you contact me regularly. And on the 11th of August, she'd phoned home and Margaret then told her daughter of this wonderful, wealthy man she'd just met. She also said that he'd proposed to her and she was actually seriously considering accepting. But they were going to continue on her walking holiday together. My my mum went on... um a singles holiday recently and I thought I wonder if she'll find a companion but if she had phoned me engaged I would have lost my shit I'd have been like without me meeting him and approve oh yeah I'd have lost I thought she'd have lost her mind I'd have been yeah well so. consider the fact that she may be being conned or kidnapped yeah Arlene if you're listening <laughs> think again She'd get really offended if she's that. She'd be like, why wouldn't they be interested in me? I can <laughs> yeah. just hear her now being like, someone may propose to me. She's never going to listen to this. <laughs> if she does, I'll wait for next week's episode. <laughs> so other than another postcard, that was the last contact that Margaret would have with her daughter. And she didn't arrive home as planned. So a search for the missing woman began. And the pair were traced to a guest house in Tongue, where the barmaid with the ring job was. All these words. They'd checked in as a couple on a walking holiday and then gone out together for a walk on the 16th of August. But David Kerr had returned alone, saying that Margaret had met some friends and just decided to go off with them instead. The next day he left but did pay, which suggests that perhaps he didn't want to have any attention drawn to this particular visit. Yeah. So the two rings that he'd given away to this barmaid were then taken and shown to Margaret's family and they said that they were her jewellery. So on the 24th of August, a couple of, so two days after she was reported missing, Mrs. Margaret McConey's body was found. She had been killed by blows to the head with a rock and she'd been buried in a shallow grave near Tongue. The next day, police released the photograph of Kerr to the English press. So until then, again, they hadn't wanted to show it and get any false identifications on the man that had killed Jack Shuttleworth, John right. Shuttleworth. They wanted to try and make sure that no one gave any false identifications. But now, with two people killed, they suspect he's a serial killer on the loose. Public safety is more important than this conviction. They just need yeah. to catch him. So, a re- I always wonder about this. A relative of the man in the photograph came forward... Oh. I always think, you know, when you see them on Crime Watch, like, they must have an entire family who see that and think, fuck. Yeah, moral dilemma. Like, can you imagine if you saw My your brother? brother? I'd shop him in a heartbeat. <laughs> but I think probably if they were that, I think you'd probably have suspicions anyway. That they're a bit of a wrong how far away they are. If I saw the lodger on crime watch i'd be too frightened oh, to dub fuck. him in yet because he's fucking living here yeah 
I'd have to get him to move, which I'm trying to anyway. I'd have to get him to move out and then dub it. <laughs> Does he listen to the podcast? I don't know. I don't <laughs> think so. He has occasionally. Just go upstairs and tell him, no. Move out! <laughs> so anyway, a relative of this, the man in the photograph came forward and identified him. Not as David Rogers, not as David Kerr, but as 50-year-old mechanic Brian Newcomb from Nottinghamshire. So this guy had been married twice, but he had been living in a small mining village of Huthwaite with his elderly mother and disabled sister. Newcomb was known to be a bit of a loner and a liar in the village. He was one of those guys who'd be down the pub, always with a story about something, something he was up to, money he had, proper bullshit. And he had a record for petty theft that spanned decades. He was always getting in trouble. But at the time of his identification, Newcomb hadn't been in Huthwaite for over six weeks. And his wife had thought, oh, he's obviously just run off with another woman. He's oh, always so married. Yeah. He's like, she's, he's always trying to chat people up. He's obviously gone off with someone. He's been gone for a, over a month now. So she'd moved out and gone to live with her mother. And information continued to flood in with all the different aliases that he had used. Gary Kerr, David Kerr, Phil Kerr. Um, but to almost everyone, he said that he was a rich guy from New Zealand and he was conning his way into the affections of many women, proposing to them and then stealing from them. So was he doing a New Zealand accent the whole time? No! <laughs> I think he was trying to say like he was some sort of expat. Oh. Chilling in Scotland. But he said that he was an engineer, a doctor, a boat importer. He even went for a bomb disposal expert. <laughs> I'd love if there had been a bomb that day. Like, we've got the guy right here. Is uh... there a bomb disposal expert in the house? <laughs> or a doctor. They kind of got him on that one. Exactly. He'd probably just step in and try and save him. 30th of August, Newcomb checked into a guest house with two other men. So he, now his picture had been released, he obviously knew he was being hunted. And he knew that travelling alone or with a woman would make him more easily identifiable because they were looking for a single man or a man with a woman. So he met two men in a pub and he promised them work on an oil rig, saying, oh, come with me, I've got work for you, we'll hook up. And said that they were going to, the rooms were going to be paid for on the company. But police were hot on his trail and had been thought that he would be heading back to sort of the East Midlands area at some point. So they were looking at guest houses around there and they'd actually visited the guest house he was in earlier in the day as part of this manhunt. It'd be, I don't think, it's got to be quite easy to catch him by then. It's like on Hunted where they release a photo, say money for information and people start just calling and saying, yeah, they've just checked in now. So if they're on the look for someone and he's going to the similar sorts of places, it doesn't take, take long to catch him. Exactly. So police were notified of his location in this guest house. And he said, and they said, leave the door unlocked because we don't want him to know that we're actually coming. We yeah. just want to be able to sneak in. So eight officers entered Newcomb's room and arrested him. His, Yay. his companions were also arrested, but on, oh, after some... Posh. Well, yeah. But after an interview, um, it was thought that they'd clearly been duped by his stories and they were not aware that he was wanted for murders at all. So Newcomb was interviewed at Skipton Station in Yorkshire, where he admitted to both murders and seemed to show little remorse for his actions. He said that he'd met John Shuttleworth when he stopped to help him fix his car. 
but that while they were in the shed getting bits and bobs, John had become argumentative and sort of tried to lash out at him. So Newcomb had smacked him in the head with some wood. Aww. So he was basically saying, well, it was his own fault. He got he got mouthy with me, so I got bashed him in the head till he died. And he just saw the wallet sticking out of his pocket and took the opportunity. So in for a penny and for a pound? No. So he claimed that also that while he was out with Margaret on their walk... As, um, on the 16th of August, she'd confronted him with the fact that he was wanted by the police in connection with the murder in Ingleton, and he was worried that she was going to turn him in, so that's why he hit her on the head with a rock. I don't buy it. Well, it wasn't true at all, because the details hadn't yet been released to the press at that time, but he gave no other explanation during his time in custody. That's upsetting for the family, though, isn't it? Because they just want just want some reasons why don't they just want the full story yeah i mean there's something there's something about her that obviously he felt like he couldn't get away from her easily or that yeah. she was too clever she was maybe spotting maybe she's more like that she was spotting holes in his stories yeah. or knew too much about him yeah so he was expected to sit two trials one in england and one in scotland um, and he was placed in a high-security wing. He had been in hospital. He was on suicide watch, being checked on regularly. But on the 13th of November, the same year, 1989, he was found hanging from the bars in his cell window. He'd blocked the peephole with a piece of paper so they couldn't check on him, and he'd used strips from his bed sheets to hang himself. He had left three suicide notes, one for his wife, one for his mother, and one for his solicitor, but in none of them did he apologise to the victims, apologise to the victims' families, show any remorse for what he'd done. He basically just said the reason he wanted to kill himself was because he couldn't live with people thinking he was a murderer, which he <laughs> Which they was. did, because you did. And we do. So, tough. We still think you're a murderer, dead or alive. So, there's that. And that's it. <laughs> Right. Here's my. This is a grim one. I'm just like warning a grim one. But it's sort of similar to Suzanne Kaffer, if you can remember her and her terrible treatment. But we had a message on Twitter, and I know this has been sort of talked about by a few podcasts recently about whether we cover people of different ethnicities. And I don't think. I don't think we consciously don't or consciously do. I think because we focus on murderers, we don't really... And we've looked at lots of murderers of different ethnicities, but I'm not sure that's really what people are, are looking for. We have done a couple of victims of colour. It's yeah. bad. Is it disrespectful that I don't remember the victim's name? I don't remember any of the victims' I've, names. I've just explained to you that I don't remember the story I told a week ago. I'm, just, I'm not very good with names. I don't know anything. You're not very good with faces either. I'm really bad with faces and I always thought <laughs> I was okay with names. You're absolutely fucked because your facial recognition is so bad. Watching a film or something with Lucy, you're like, oh, what's that person from? <laughs> She's no clue. She thinks she saw them in Sainsbury's. <laughs> <laughs> if Lucy's IDing anyone in an identity parade, you need to be fucking worried. Honestly, Because it's yeah. basically look of the draw. Yeah. <laughs> She'll have any one of you. She will meet my new groups and just for ages I'm just like, that's just another blonde girl. Blonde girl, generic the li- blonde girl. the little girl. white blonde girls. Like when I, yeah, yeah, every time I get a new class, I'm like, look, you're all going to have to start differentiating yeah. yourself with headbands. Yeah. And those names on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't know who you are. You're just blonde child to me. <laughs> so I've been meaning to do this one for a while. It is the case of Victoria Klimay, which is 
quite a well-known one among the sort of teachers and social workers, I would think, because it's quite a massive case. Um, and I wanted to cover it because she is a young woman of colour, um, but also it's just such a, a massive UK case. So I'm, yeah, I'm not this, prob- this case I know about already. We had to do it at uni. We've had to yeah. do it on safeguarding courses. It changed legislation in this country um, in terms of safeguarding children massively. And it's a horrible way for it to have to happen, but it's it you'll see it's going to be remembered forever because it did just change things so if it's not particularly funny then it's probably for the best to be honest i don't know that anything we do is particularly funny it's well researched give us that yeah we come out both ears but don't wear headphones while driving can you not no this one like someone was like oh well when i'm driving with my headphones in you shouldn't be driving with your headphones in anyway i do that because if i'm going fast i can't hear it do you lucy a little bit Okay, of course you can't hear it because you're supposed to be listening to the fucking road. Yeah, but then I can hear all the noises my car oh. makes. It freaks me out. Oh. So, serious. Victoria was born in 1991. So this is quite a recent case. Um, and she was born in Abobo, which is in Côte d'Ivoire. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it's in West Africa. Côte d'Azur? No. Oh. Côte d'Ivoire. Ivoire, I think. I V O I R E. Okay. It's in West Africa. The Ivory Coast. It's a small country and it's got an official language of French. So she was fluent in French. Um, she left the country in 2000, age nine, to live in France with her great aunt, who um, was called Marie Therese Couau. Now, her parents had allowed her to go and Victoria was happy to go and she was chosen out of. Um, the family over her three her three brothers um, but her parents had only met Kawao a few times um, but I know that sounds really unusual for us it wasn't that unusual an arrangement um, in their society I think because they felt by someone traveling abroad it was such a good opportunity that they would be more willing to let their children go if there was an opportunity and she was a family member wasn't she she was yeah. a auntie she was a great aunt um, so they were really happy with the the what was happening so uh victoria traveled under the name anna kuau um and was called anna from then on so she wasn't known as victoria when she was living At in all. france or england um because kuau had originally planned to take a girl called anna i don't think she was a relative i think it just happened to have the same last name but the family had changed their mind and she just thought oh well they look sort of similar i'll just stick uh, her on her so passport she was, so it was like pretty much chance that victoria even ended up going on this trip yeah oh. it was going to be anna but um she just thought it's easier just to change the kid's name than the passport i guess yeah so kual and victoria moved to paris and victoria went to school now it's quite good in france for her because obviously she spoke french yes she could understand the language um but she began to be quite absent at school and the school got social services involved um, and she had come to school very tired. And at one point she had had her head shaved and she came in wearing a wig and teachers started to ask questions as they thought things just weren't quite right. And her great aunt had told them that she had a skin condition, but it still raised all these questions that social services were sniffing out around quite a lot. So after only a few months in Paris, Victoria and Coel left France and moved to West London where they lived at a bed and breakfast. Now... Um, there's different kinds of bed and breakfast. So you can have like a a hotel type bed and breakfast, but you also get 
um, bed and breakfast, which are basically people's private homes where they rent out a room um, to the council if they need, almost like a council house, but they'll do it privately. And the council will just pay whatever they're charging to put someone up so they're not on the street, basically. So I think it was one of those bed and breakfast, right. basically. Um, so they moved into that. And I think it was quite clear that Kuwait only really wanted Victoria around to get accommodation easier. So in this kind of situation, because if she'd been a woman on her own, they would have just put her at the bottom of the list. Yeah. Whereas with a child, automatically you say, well, you can't have a child on the street, therefore you move up. Um, Victoria couldn't speak any English, so she was completely isolated. Uh, And social workers, again, were involved in her being placed because it was a child and therefore they had to secure a place. So they would be involved at that point. Um, But they didn't try talking to her and they didn't really get any translators. So, which I'm really surprised at because she's speaking French, which it's not like we're devoid of French speakers here. Yeah. Like everyone learns it at school. I mean, I didn't even learn it past year eight, and I could still be like, bonjour. Yeah. If she was like, je m'appelle Victoria, I'd be like, hmm, something doesn't seem right with Anna. <laughs> yeah. I think probably she'd been told to go by Anna by her great aunt. And obviously, she's the only person that she knows. But they weren't really worried about Victoria anyway because although she looked a bit dirty and she was quite small they thought that really that uh, Kuwait was making her look worse because she wanted a nicer accommodation or she wanted it all to happen faster having it up for sympathy yeah so um Victoria didn't start school in the UK even though you'd think that would be the first thing that they would do get get into school but she spent most of her time at Priscilla Cameron's house which was a lady that Kuwait had met out and about, and she um, had asked her to childmind for her. Didn't really know her, just another woman that she'd met. Um, and Priscilla Cameron said that she did sometimes notice cuts on Victoria's hands, but she asked Kuwait about it, and she said that Victoria had been playing with razor blades, you know, as young children do. Yep, classic razor blade play. <laughs> Although, I, do have a, I had a razor blade incident when I was a child. I remember it was like a family party and my auntie brought out this little tin box that had belonged to her granddad during the war. Yeah. And inside it was like a couple of his little bits and pieces that he would have with him in the trenches or something. And like... Question <laughs> <laughs> <Rushed a> mark. <laughs> Trench. Um, and, and in it, there were some razor blades that he would use to shave, obviously. And... Like, at the time, like, you know on TV, if someone gets handed, like, a sword or a new blade that's just been sharpened, like, can you imagine in a cartoon and, like, they take a finger or a thumb and they just run it along the edge of the blade and, like, yeah, that's a good blade, that's so sharp. So I picked up this razor blade and I just ran my thumb right across the top of it thinking, like, I'll see how sharp this is, but just sliced, completely, like, sliced myself like butter. But then I I was so embarrassed because I didn't want to explain (laughs) to anyone how I'd completely sliced across myself, but, like, I deliberately... Afterwards, like, you're a fucking idiot. Like, why would you even do that on a blade? I thought it was magic. I don't know what I thought. So I didn't want to tell anyone. So I remember, like, having my thumb in a fist and then the blood started seeping through my oh. like through my fingers that so is I, classic emma trying to be polite and trying to hide some so real problem like, that bloody you're fist in my pocket because i was like God. i didn't want to tell anyone that i'd cut myself on the street so i just had this like <laughs> jesus i looked like i'd murdered someone and i got in the car to go home i was like mother <laughs> like, oh, <me."> emma 
I'll get yeah. the first aid kit that I carry around. Definitely, like awkward social situations. Repress everything. <laughs> but I don't think she was doing that. I think. <laughs> no, I think someone was active. You only need to do up. that once. Yeah, you don't have several cuts from no. that. So. Uh, that was another suspicious thing, but no one reported anything because she just went, yeah, fine, okay, whatever. So the the family, so um, Victoria and Kuao met up with a distant relative of Kuao in London um, who happened to be in London as well. She was called Esther Akar and she was immediately concerned about Victoria's appearance. So she just thought this child is not healthy and not living her best life. So she did what you should do and phoned social services and said that she had real concerns over Victoria, that she had scars on her face, she had signs of harm um, and that she didn't think where they were living was unsuitable. And you'd really think in in the perfect world that would be the end of it. Social services intervene and this child's picked up as someone who's going through abuse. Didn't happen. So the referral went in, but no one dealt with it, and it just seemed to disappear. Like, how injured do you have to be before someone steps in? Well, I think they were. I think they were planning on investigating. They just went missing. I mean, I don't know if this was pre-computers and it was filing systems, but where you actually had to write things on notes of paper, which I can't imagine doing now. Um, But it might even just have been the case that just information wasn't shared, which I think is why we talk about it now because it just shows the importance of sharing information and like if you have a concern you report it to one place like say you report to social services they then now have to tell the school as well and tell the but i think they didn't even they didn't even investigate this referral obviously you have a referral but to to make it even worse esther phoned again days later just to check that it had been dealt with and they so she was that concerned she wasn't like oh i'll just phone it in my job's done she's like "I, i need to chase this up yeah she's like i've not heard anything I know that she's still there. I'll, I guess she was probably expecting Kuao to give her an angry phone call saying, what have you been saying about me? Um, but nothing happened and she phoned up again and they basically said, well, if you've made a referral, then it's probably being dealt with. But they didn't add, They didn't do a whole new referral. It wasn't considered a new um, problem and therefore the old one had gone missing and then nothing was ever done. So I think nowadays if someone phones again, they treat it as a new referral and the, and therefore it sort of triggers again. Right. Um, but then they didn't. They were just like, yeah, it's probably sorted. So this was a completely missed opportunity by social services to step in and look after um, Victoria. Uh, Kuao had now met a guy called Carl Manning, who was a bus driver, and they began a relationship. I think they met on the bus. They just they just started chatting. She just refused to get off. <laughs> She's like, if you want to get me off here, you're going to have to carry me. To take me on a date. So they started dating and only two weeks after they met, um, Kuao and Victoria moved into Carl Manning's flat. Surely the first time you've met a like clearly neglected child, you'd be like, she's not like, this isn't a relationship for me. Yeah. She's not able to look after a child. She's not a nice person. (laughs) I don't know. She's just a nasty person. You'd think, wouldn't you? But there's all sorts in this world, Emma. I hate to break Do you think too. people don't care if people are mean to kids? Are there people like... Oh, actually, I know that's true. There's loads of cases where people have picked um, sex offenders over their own children and had their children removed because they'd rather be with this man. It's looking like that. Yeah. So they moved into his flat and social workers had no idea where they'd gone. So even if they were involved, 
there was you know they sort of disappeared and um they didn't really try and find her because obviously this referral hadn't gone through the social workers working with her previously were like well we got a housing job done so she sort of disappeared so on 13th of july only a week after um Kuau and victoria had moved in with carl Kuau went to ask priscilla camera and this babysitter um if she could have victoria full-time because carl didn't really like her She's a bit of a drag having this child around. Yeah, so she said to Priscilla, can you take this child that I've moved to England with and just have her after all that? Um, Priscilla said, good God, no. That's a weird thing to ask me. (laughs) But she did say that she would let Victoria sleep over. So obviously, Victoria's not been away from this house for a long time for an overnight stay. So when getting her ready for bed... um, uh, Priscilla and her two sort of grown up his children. I think one was a, a teenager at school, the boy, and then the girl, I think, had her own children, so she was probably in her 20s, maybe. Um, and they discover scars all over Victoria, all over her body, all over her face. There was a burn on her. And Priscilla asked Kuau about what, what had happened, and she said that Victoria had done it to herself. As children do. Just... Yeah. Well, there's a lot of places you can't reach on your own body as well. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Priscilla and her children took Victoria to see her son's French teacher I assume because he's a French teacher it's because they thought maybe she could talk to him and and explain these scars but he took one look at her and said take her to hospital so they did that so it was that obvious that all he had to do was meet her yeah and say she should well I think they were like she's got these scars and he was like take her to the hospital right now Um, which is probably good advice Um, and so uh, Avril the older the daughter took her straight to the hospital now victoria was seen by quite a few doctors and they asked her about her injuries um and she did say that she'd done them to herself right um, which she was probably primed for saying um she clearly hadn't because she couldn't um so she was kept in hospital and she was placed in police custody because of these concerns now Kuau obviously was brought in to the hospital to speak to them and she said that victoria had scabies and she had scratched at herself with various instruments because of the the pain that it's causing and the pediatrician went along with this being a possibility despite not speaking to victoria about it not getting someone who could speak to her and is scabies itself not a sign of neglect like how do you get scabies should that not be a red flag anyway well, I, I mean, I think the scabies is... I think anyone can get scabies. I think it's little creatures that burrow under your skin. Yeah, but, but is that not a signal? If a child has scabies, is that not a signal like, she's not getting looked after properly? I think a little bit, but they sort of thought social services would investigate that, but that's not a reason to keep her in a hospital indefinitely. Just, cheeky, just a cheeky dose of scabies. I was diagnosed I mean, with scabies once, yeah. falsely. I was working on a kids camp. Falsely. I was falsely accused <laughs> of having scabies. I was working on this kids camp that was in a uh, like a youth hostel where like travellers stay. People who are travelling around the UK stay for cheap. You know, like six beds in a dorm type thing. Yeah. And we were staying in a room, um, and every night we were getting bitten, and we had like we wake up with all these bites on us. And one of my roommates stayed up one night. She said she could actually see the the bed bugs <gasps> crawling on the bed, no. and like she was squat swatting them. And there was like little patches of blood where she swatted them, and they'd obviously got her blood in there. It's disgusting. And we went to the doctors about it uh, because that's what the leader of the camp was like twenty twenty five or something like that, a leader camp. Uh, that's what she said. And um, 
she, the doctor said, I think it's scabies. And we were like, I'm sure it's bed bugs. Like, no, probably scabies. And because of that, we had to be quarantined into a room away from the kids nice. for about a week and not do any work. So we just sat and watched films and ate crap all day. Loves it. But it was stupid because other workers came in and sat with us all the time anyway. I was like, I this is hardly. Um, so, as a result, she was allowed to go home because they said, well, maybe she is scratching scabies. Um, and no actions were put in place. Police also didn't visit Victoria, even though part of the process of her having been on police custody and then being removed from it was that they have a visit to the house and they just didn't bother so another missed opportunity to save victoria uh, all the services trusted each other that that things were going on but she was just completely left so on july 24th still the same month that she'd just been in the hospital and had these concerns victoria was taken back to hospital with severe burns on her Ooh really awful so this time there wasn't any sign of scabies and the hospital immediately suspected abuse however the doctor still wrote in her notes despite considering that this child might be um at risk able to discharge and when she was asked later she said that she was basically saying that the girl can walk like she's She's able to. She's physically able. Yeah, she's like, healthy enough to go. If you want go. to put her in foster care, she can be taken now. Yeah. Whereas, because she'd written that on the notes, the hospital, the other staff read that as, oh, it's fine to send her home, and they sent her home. So, real issue with these notes. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, and she got sent home again. Um, so, social workers who were expected to visit after she was discharged, cancelled their visit because they'd heard about the scabies. I don't know if they were scared of catching it or something, or they thought, oh, well, that's fine then. There's All an explanation. All are now gone away. Like, she's just riddled with diseases. Not my <laughs> problem. Yeah. They also believed Kuao uh, stories that she had said that Victoria had poured boiling water over herself because she'd been itching so much. Which, logic. I mean, what child is going to just tip hot water on themselves because that's more pleasant than itching so um they it's just also ridiculous it. because na- like if a kid told me a story that even if a kid said to me i poured boiling water on myself i would be like right why was no one watching you when you did it yeah which is fine because kids do stuff and you can't watch them 24 7 i'm not trying to pass judgment on any parents like they do stuff when you're not watching and you can't be there all the time but if it's a kid that has got other injuries and yeah, or is off school fit. a lot, and well, she's not even in school, so and no one. no one was watching them pouring water. Well, this is the problem. Maybe she'd been in school. I'd have saved her. Yeah, but she wasn't even in school, so there's literally no one getting involved daily in her life. So God knows what she she was going through at this stage. So following this, social services again tried to take up the case and look into it because she was on the books, and they thought we'd probably better investigate. Um, but they locked the door. She wasn't there. They decided, oh, she's probably moved away therefore we're gonna close the case um so manning at this point had started and this is through uh his interviews later on but he said that he um, was forcing victoria to sleep in the bath every night because she wet the bed which wetting the bed is a sign of abuse um as well as defecating and he was just i think just like oh that's disgusting she could sleep in the bath we're not cleaning the sheets every night um so um she she was having this horrific 
I mean, who was this Carl who was just like, yeah, I'm all right with that? Yeah, or... like, how do you randomly meet someone? I would have thought that being an abuser was so rare that the chances of you meeting a guy on a bus who fancies home. you and also happens to love abusing kids is like... Fred and Rosie and Myra. I don't know. I mean, I think if... I guess if, if the case hadn't been like that, that, we wouldn't have heard about it. So it's just bad bad luck, like really bad luck. Social services, again, did try and visit because uh, they hadn't quite closed the case yet. And the paediatrician for the hospital had called them and said whatever happened to that girl who was clearly being abused and they're like uh are we trying to home so they tried to visit again um they didn't speak to victoria or try to get her into school which would have been key in her if only to stop fucking patricia having to babysit her all the bloody time like you'd think if you don't like having her around this much like she's so annoying to you get her in school yeah then you don't have to see her for hours of the day so Kuao at this point applied for a house to move away from Manning. They'd obviously been having arguments or things weren't working out. And when she went to ask about this, she was told that she wasn't a priority because they had somewhere they could stay, which was his house, and Victoria wasn't at risk. However, she then started saying that Manning was sexually abusing Victoria. Now, right. I, she was clearly making it up. Um, to try well she's clearly talking out about it to try and uh, get a new house um however the next day she withdrew the allegation so social workers kind of went oh well she was obviously lying to get a new house and didn't investigate that as they would have if she hadn't have dropped it i think probably she thought oh god they're going to come investigate now and uh, you know i'm abusing yeah. this child maybe she was just angry at manning and decided oh here's a way that i can get back at him yeah and so, then realized oh fuck this is going to drop me in it too yeah so, Victoria needed to go to hospital again, but um, oh, Kuwell just stopped taking her. Um, so instead, she started taking um, Victoria to church. Um, so she told the pastor that Victoria had demons inside her and that her injuries were due to demonic possession. And in response, he prayed over her to try and cast out the demons. Uh, she also said Satan had tried had told Victoria to burn herself and that's why she had burns on her. I mean, what kind of pastor is looking at this child and saying, yeah, all right, then I'll, g- I'll give a prayer and on you go. Exactly. Everyone knows Just... the devil doesn't speak French. Like, I know you believe in God, but you still also believe that people are dickheads too. The thing is, I mean, this isn't that long ago and I, we were in church. And we yeah, it's not medieval stuff. times when you're like... Oh, we had training so you'd have to report stuff. I'm sure we were aware... Yeah. When we did church work, that we had a responsibility. Maybe it's different because we worked with the Salvation Army, very much charity employment stuff, don't they? Whereas other churches can just, like, you can just pop, you can be a church. Yeah. Like, my kitchen could be a church. Could it? Mm, You're in it right now. Do you want to pray? No. Well, then get out of my church. Oh. So, from October to January, not much is known about Victoria's life apart from that we can assume it was horrific. She was sleeping in the bath, we know that. Uh, she didn't go to school, she didn't go to hospital, so no one was involved in her life outside of her abusers. Um, so the tragedy of this story is really sort of how cut off she was and how alone she was. Now, social workers tried to visit three times, but because they received no reply, they assumed that the family had moved away. So eventually... She'd been on the books for a while and they decided it was time just to give up and close the case for Victoria Bay and assume that she'd just moved away and she was under someone else's priority list now. 
And the day, sadly, that they closed the case happened to be the day that Victoria died on the 25th of February 2000. So she'd on the day that she died, she'd been taken to a church by Coel and was severely malnourished. She, she had organ failure. She had hypothermia. She was in an absolutely dreadful state. And the pastor at this church told her to take her to the hospital because clearly she was going to die. So she was rushed to intensive care and she died just hours later. She had 128 injuries and scars on her body, including cigarette burns, evidence of being tied up, marks from hammers and marks from chains. So the abuse that she was suffering was intense. Um, And both Kowal and Manning were arrested and charged with child cruelty and murder, quite rightly. So an inquiry was launched to find out why and with so many services, so with doctors, police, social workers being involved in her her short life, why no one had stepped in and said, this is a child being abused, we need to remove her immediately, and why she was left to suffer. So as well as poor management of the case, so things going missing, um, many had said that Victoria's race had actually played quite a big part as well, uh, because it meant that people were slightly scared of being accused of racism for one but also the fact that victoria was quite quiet and clearly quite scared of kowal they sort of maybe thought maybe a racial thing like like a sign of respect maybe maybe or like a culture yeah i was thinking maybe in their culture this is how children treat their parents maybe as a sign of respect um and didn't treat it maybe in the same way that they might have with a white child where they would have just thought well i know that this clearly is abuse all these errors obviously had resulted in such a tragic ending and Manning and Kowal received life imprisonment and social workers were suspended. Now they were suspended with full pay, which I find... It's not really suspended, is it? That's holiday. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they were investigated. The idea was, look, this has been horrific and the safeguards weren't in place and therefore we learn from it and we make changes immediately. But that that didn't happen. Only two years later... After Victoria's death, Ainley Walker, um, another young black child, only two, um, was found dead having been abused and starved. Also having social work involvement, but who had failed to make visits and failed to step step in. So really, really two terrible, terrible cases. So Victoria and Ainley's death contributed to a lot of changes in child protection law and improvements in communication between different services um, to ensure that children don't slip through the net like this. And this is why we learn about it as teachers and take it as you know really, really important that we have. I mean, we have safeguarding training all the time, don't we? I mean, it yeah, is, you have to have it every couple of years. Yeah, it, is, it does. I mean, it is tiring and people do moan about it, but it is so, so important because of cases like this where where she was subjected to the most awful experiences um and i just thought it was an important case to cover because use your platform yeah so thank you for giving us the platform yeah thank you for listening and there's not really much else to say Mm -mm. so sorry to leave you on a downer but Sometimes life is a downer.